Well, as we normally do, or as we should do when we begin uh, any new study of a book, we need to take care of some introductory matters. So that's, that's what I'm going to do just here briefly. We're going to talk about, in the introduction, we're going to talk about the prophet, uh, the purpose of the book of Habakkuk, what we learn, so you'll be looking for those things as we go through it, and some key themes. So the prophet, uh, the purpose what we will learn, and some key themes as we go through this. And I'm going to give those to you, beginning right now. Uh, the prophet Habakkuk. Now, we don't know much about this guy. If you read the rest of the Bible, guess what? He's not going to show up anywhere else. Nothing is known about Habakkuk other than he was a prophet. It's likely that Habakkuk lived during the time of the godly king Josiah. You go to 2 Kings chapter 22, you can read about Josiah. It's believed that Habakkuk lived during that time. So Habakkuk lived during a time of spiritual revival. That's what Josiah is most known for in the Bible, which is a good thing to be known for. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So Habakkuk lived during a time of spiritual revival. And then... He gave this prophecy that we're looking at during the reign of one of the most wicked kings who came after Josiah. That being the case, then Habakkuk knew what it was, he knew what it was like to live during a time of revival and then to see God's people, a nation of people, God's people slip back into sin. Habakkuk, think... What's going on? He's seen revival. He knows what that's like. And then God's people fall back into sin, and he has a problem. He had lived through a period of revival, followed by a quick fall back into spiritual decline. Now, the name Habakkuk means embracer. That's what that name means in Hebrew. It means embracer. His name probably means he who embraces or he who clings. It's an appropriate name uh, for uh, this prophet, in particular the book, because Habakkuk comes to a firm faith through his struggle with some tough questions. He has to embrace those things. And he had an intimate and a powerful personal relationship with God. It comes out in these three chapters. We'll see that come out. He loved God and he was deeply concerned. Listen. He was deeply concerned about the glory of God. Now, the purpose of Habakkuk. Again, the prophet was deeply troubled by the evil that was widespread in Judah. As as we go through this, you'll see what was troubling Habakkuk. Habakkuk lived um, uh, like the other other minor prophets. It's a prophetic book. There's prophecy going on here. It's like other uh, minor prophets. However, Habakkuk is unusual as a prophetic book in that it never addresses the people of Judah directly. Habakkuk goes to God with questions, and what you have in Habakkuk is a conversation between the prophet and God in which God answers his questions. And as we'll see, the first two chapters contain Habakkuk's prayers or as Habakkuk will refer to them as complaints. And then we'll see God's reply. Habakkuk prays, God replies. In chapter 3, we'll see that God answers, God's answers turn Habakkuk from complaining to being completely satisfied and content in the ways of God. 
It's just amazing how you'll see this happen. So what do we learn from Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk teaches us something very, very important. It's all the Word of God does. Habakkuk may not fully understand God's ways, to which we would say, Amen, right? But he has learned to accept without hesitation the wisdom and justice of God to bring about the right decisions in ways he could have never imagined. And at the end of the book, this is crucial, Habakkuk teaches us that God is without a doubt worthy of praise and worship. So, here's some key things. I'll give you four. There are quite possibly more, but these are the four prominent ones, I think. God is just and merciful, even though His people may not always understand His ways. Chapter 2, verse 4. God is just and merciful, even though His people may not always understand His ways. If you are trying to get that down and you don't get it, you just send me an email or a text and I'll shoot you a Word document with all this stuff on there. It's what you're going. Thank you. Uh, Another thing, wickedness will eventually be punished and the righteous will ultimately see God's justice. Does anybody remember another book we studied where we saw that thing? The book of Revelation, right? Third, God uses some wicked nations to punish other wicked nations, but ultimately, God will judge all nations. That's what's happening here. God uses one wicked nation to punish another nation, or His people, but ultimately, God will judge all the nations. And fourth, the key phrase, but the righteous will live by faith, uh, summarizes the way God intends for His people to live And that phrase, the righteous will live or shall live by faith, is quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Romans 1, 17. Galatians 3, 11. And Hebrews 10, 38. And each time, each one of those verses highlights a different aspect of that phrase's meaning. So you have to read that verse and then read it in context to get a better idea of what Habakkuk's hearing here from God. In chapter 1, we see that Habakkuk is very uh, disturbed over the spiritual and social state of God's people, Judah. And I'm going to explain that as we go through. Habakkuk speaks to God about his frustration over the depravity and the corruption that's going on among God's people, and he pleads to God to do something about it. And God's response is completely the opposite of what Habakkuk is looking for, or what he expects God to do. So if you're looking at your handout, the main idea, (coughs) a disturbed prayer over the sin of God's people and God's response. This next part's the application right up front, or the main idea. In prayer, we honestly seek God's answer and humbly accept God's answer. That's not original to me. I have a friend who preached through Habakkuk. The first part is original to me. A disturbed prayer over the sin of God's people and God's response. I'm borrowing from someone else there. In prayer, we honestly seek God's answer and humbly accept God's answer. We seek God's answer. You'll see Habakkuk do that. But it's one thing when you get the answer to humbly accept that answer. So, 
verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk's first complaint, again, that's the way Habakkuk will refer to his prayer. (coughs) And might I add, we could probably do that with some of ours at times as well. Habakkuk's first complaint, why does a just God tolerate injustice? Verse 1, you see the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Man, there's a lot in that verse, even though there's not a lot there. Uh, The word oracle means burden. And what we have here is a burden that Habakkuk saw. He he was a prophet and he he had a vision. Habakkuk saw some things. And the things that Habakkuk saw brought him this anguish, this deep distress and this great concern. This is important for us to remember. That Habakkuk's response to what he sees going on among God's people, which eventually affects the whole nation. He's deeply disturbed over that. What did he see? Well, at one point in Israel's history, I'm going to give you something that will help us better understand what's going on here as we read the book of Habakkuk. What did he see? Well, at one point in Israel's history, most of you are familiar with this, and I don't want to assume you know this, but if you've read the Old Testament, you know that God split Israel into two separate nations. The northern kingdom... Israel, and its capital was Samaria, and the southern kingdom was Judah, the capital being Jerusalem. So Israel was split into two different countries, if you will. You go to 1 Kings chapter 12, and you'll find out the reason why God did that. Israel, the northern kingdom, after that split, immediately went into wicked idolatry, uh, and it wasn't long after the split that it happened. And it wasn't long after that, in the year 722 B.C., man, that's a long time ago, wasn't it? That Assyria, a powerful Gentile nation, came and took the northern kingdom, overthrew them, took them from the promised land into exile. So the northern kingdom is sinful against God. God sends the Assyrians. They uh, overtake them and take them into exile. But God delivered the southern kingdom, Judah, and the city of Jerusalem. A godly king named Hezekiah had gone before God in prayer, and God saved the southern kingdom for another hundred years. Hezekiah, like all of us, will, he died, and his son Manasseh became king. He was the most wicked king in the history of Judah. If you, if you read through the the uh, the first and second kings and uh, First and Second Chronicles, you see all these kings in there. Israel, the northern kingdom, never had a godly king. Not a single one. Judah had four godly kings. So Manasseh, the son of... Uh, uh, after Hezekiah becomes king, and he was the most wicked king in the history of Judah. And he immediately led Judah, <coughs> even to worse idolatry and sin, that the northern kingdom Israel had experienced. Now, Manasseh's son, Josiah... Remember talking about Josiah? He succeeded Manasseh. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Man, that's a load for a child to carry, right? And you understand that, you know, right? He's next in line. He takes over. He grew, obviously, became a man. He became a godly man. 
the most godly of all the kings in either nation, Judah or Israel. And he restored and purified the temple where the worship was to take place. He got the temple sacrifices back in order. They hadn't been done in years. And he did this because Manasseh, before him, had taken an idol and put it in the most holy of holies in the temple. What was the most holy of holies? That's where God met the priests. And Manasseh had set up this ungodly idol in there. And so Josiah purifies the temple. And while the temple is being restored, something interesting happens. The book of the law is found. This is probably what most scholars believe to be the book of Deuteronomy. And it was brought to Josiah and he read it. He read the word of God. And as he heard the words of the law, he began to weep. He began to cry because he realized that the wrath of God against their nation was great because they had sinned greatly. Josiah died at the age of 39. He was king 31 years. And immediately after that, after this godly king who's restored the temple, brought back in the sacrifices, gotten rid of the high places, gotten rid of all the false worship, what do you think happens when Josiah dies? Boom, right back into sin. The high places were immediately rebuilt by Josiah's ungodly son, Jehoiakim. And that brings us to a back. So do you see the situation that's going on? Revival. He's seen God be restored to worship in Judah, but yet they fall right back into it. Habakkuk looks around and he says, what in the world is going on? Verses 2 and 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Uh, The wording here indicates that Habakkuk has already been calling out to God and he continues to do so. He just didn't start. He's been doing this. Asking God. Do something, God. He's been doing this for a long time. Notice Habakkuk's focus there. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence? He cries out to God against the violence of the people. You see how far they've fallen? But God has not responded. He's been calling out for a long time. And notice what He said there. O Lord, how long? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Then notice what He says. God will not save. He refuses to say. That's the idea that Habakkuk's giving out here. Notice Habakkuk asked, as we said, how long? Listen, Habakkuk is concerned about the glory of God. He knows God is holy and pure and God's people are not acting that way. And he's going, God, how long? Judah... It's falling apart due to its moral failures. Sin is rampant. Where are you, God? Wouldn't you be thinking that as well? Man, we just come out of a time of great revival in the history of our people, and now we're what? We're right back in that. Where are you, God? How long, God, is this going to keep going on? Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you... Notice that next word. Idly. Look at wrong. When we talk about someone being idle, what do we mean? 
They're just sitting around there lazy. They're not doing anything, right? Now, you might be going, man, that's an awful bold way to come to God, right? Some of us are going, I would never do that. But you've got to understand the motive and why he was coming to God. He's disturbed, he's distressed right over the sin of God's people, but what's the biggest concern of him? God's glory. God is holy. Here's God's people. We're acting nothing like our God calls us to act. God, you're holy. How can you look on this? How long, oh Lord? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? <clears throat> then notice he piles all this up. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. You see those words iniquity and wrong. They speak of the, the, that's the depravity of Judah. This isn't just, you know... Little white lies. These people, they are totally into sin. Why do you make me see? Why do you, <coughs> excuse me, why do you idly, God, why do you just sit by and look at all this? Habakkuk's angry due to this everyday sin. He, he can hardly believe that his holy God appears, notice there, appears to tolerate sin instead of punishing. Okay? Habakkuk looks and he sees the sin of God's people and he cries, but there seems to be no answer from God. Does that make sense? He's been doing this for a long time, God. Look. And he's, he, he's crying out to God. <coughs> Destruction, violence, strife, contention. These are not isolated practices. All, all of God's people are corrupted. And Habakkuk is wondering why God, the holy righteous God, why... Why are you not troubled about this, God? Why are you not acting? <coughs> Habakkuk starts with a complaint. As he says, it's a prayer, but he calls it a complaint. Habakkuk says, God, how can you, a holy, just, righteous God, how can you tolerate this wickedness? You gave us your law. You gave us your word. We're breaking it. Do something. Verse 4, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, <clears throat> so justice for, goes forth perverted. There's an indication that there are some people who are still righteous because they are surrounded by the wicked, but the, as a whole, they're looking at God's people, this society, and they're just overrun with sin and corruption and just disregarding God's Word and just running headlong into sin. People are, are, are killing each other. Violence. There's deceit. There's idolatry. There's false religion. There's social injustice. The, the poor are being crushed and put down. The powerful are, are taking from the poor. But when they try to go to court, the, the courts are crooked because somebody has bribed them. They can't even get justice. So the whole system, he says, the law is paralyzed. God's law is not working here, and that's even affecting our society's laws. Nobody, nobody can do anything, and, and why is that? <coughs> There's this idea that the leaders, all the leaders of God's people have become corrupt. They're wicked. So you can't even get the leaders of God's people to act, to do what's right. Does that kind of give you an idea of what's going on in Judah? Remember, where's Josiah just come from for 
31 years of the reign. I mean, uh, Habakkuk just come from under the 31 years of Josiah. He's seen what it's like for God's people to follow God. But now he sees them fall back in. So, you know, I, I look at this and I think, you know, what are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to think? What, what are we supposed to do as a way of applying this? You know, I think, you know, do you, Christian, do we, the church, have this view of our society? Now, listen, I'm not talking about, you know, I used to be guilty of saying this. Our country's going to hell in a handbasket. Do we have this view of our society? Not because we look at people doing wrong and think, how can you be so sinful and stupid? Habakkuk's doing what? God's glory. God's holiness is being disregarded here. Do you, Christian, do we the church have this view of our society? Do you, Christian, have this perspective on the sinfulness of our society that Habakkuk has? It's not about us, it's about who? God and His glory. Are you concerned over the lostness of your community, of those around you? Are we concerned that we the church may be failing to be salt and light in our world? Do you see what happened to Judah when God's people turned away from God? They weren't the salt and the light they were supposed to be. What ends up happening? The whole society crumbles and falls. We have a responsibility as the church to be salt and light with the gospel. You know, I'm as guilty as anyone. We complain about our society, right? How many of us run to God in prayer and say, God, help us as the church to be salt and light? Do you understand that the gospel that we have is the only cure for what's wrong with us? Are you concerned that there might be sin in the life of the church that would hinder the lost from being saved? I'm telling you. Don't think that does not happen. If you're like me, you've invited enough people to church to try to tell them about Jesus and what's one of their responses. Uh, church is full of hypocrites. To which you Lord say, well, yeah. Just come on down. God's grace covers it all. Don't try to lie and say, well, we, we ain't got any. Just say, that may be true. But that doesn't dismiss the fact that you're lost and you still need Jesus. It might be that Habakkuk's thinking, God, we need, we need a revival. We had that under Josiah. It might be that Habakkuk is praying for a revival. Is that what we pray for? That God would revive us, His church, to be the salt and light in a dark world. Habakkuk helps us see that the church should have a, a heart that deeply desires to see the Word of God and God's glory honored. First and foremost, by God's people. Alright? Listen, we need to quit complaining about the lost acting like the lost because lost people act like lost people. We need to be worried about us acting like God's people so that we can be salt and light to them. Habakkuk calls on God to intervene. That should be the desire that we have. Habakkuk's passionate prayer life is a good example for us. I look at this and go, man, is my prayer life there? I have to, if I'm honest, I'm like, boy, it needs to be. It should be. Also, we're like Habakkuk, and we, we think the problem here is God's apparent silence. 
God is just too patient for us, right? How many of you have that problem? God, He just doesn't act when I think He should act. We look and we want Him to act immediately. Something goes wrong and we want God to take care of that right now. God seems to close His eyes to this thing. (coughs) His silence is misunderstood. We misunderstand God's nature or we misunderstand His purposes. We don't see the plan. But we want to see the plan, right? If you're like me, I'm one of them kind It's like, I've got to figure this thing out way down the road. I want to know what's happening so I can get everything in line. Are any of y'all like that? Y'all like to see the plan? Yeah. What are you doing, God? Let us see that. Habakkuk calls on God to do something. Now, in verses 5 through 11 we see God's answer to Habakkuk's confusion. <coughs> Here's God's response. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astonished. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I think I've told some of you this. I saw a guy wearing a t-shirt one time that had this verse on it. Apparently he'd not read the rest of the book of Habakkuk. Or you wouldn't be wearing a t-shirt that I'm, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. If he read what comes after that, he'd have thrown his t-shirt away. Because here's what God's going to do. Here's the work I'm going to do in your day. God answers Habakkuk's prayer, his complaint. Habakkuk wants relief from grief caused by what's going on in Judah. He wants relief from the sinfulness of humanity, of God's people. <clears throat> and God answers there. He gives him three imperatives. He says, look, see, and be astounded. God told Habakkuk, don't worry about it. Look at the surrounding nations and from them will come a nation that will be my instrument of judgment on sinful Judah. Oh, Habakkuk, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do it my way and in my time, but what I'm going to do, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Why, Why look and see and be astounded? For I'm doing a work in your days that you will not believe if told. Habakkuk, I'm doing it. It's just that what I'm doing, you wouldn't believe it if I told it to you. See, God's telling Habakkuk, I'm in control, Habakkuk. God's saying, I had a plan in place for this before the foundation of the world. God's not silent because He's worried, because He doesn't have a clue what to do. God is going to do a work of judgment so shocking that Habakkuk would have a hard time believing it. You and I are like Habakkuk. We we don't believe a lot of times that God is working out His plan in our world, right? Verse (coughs) 6. Here it comes. For behold... I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Notice what it says there. God says what? I am raising up. God says, I control the political scene of all of history and I use nations for my own purposes. Habakkuk lived here in a time of turmoil. Not just in Judah, but worldwide. There was this time of political 
turmoil. The Assyrians, which had taken the northern kingdom, they were losing power, while the Babylonians, which are the Chaldeans that we see here, were, were gaining it. They were overthrowing. They were beginning to take control. And God says, I'm bringing the Babylonians. Habakkuk, they're coming to take care. They're coming to be my instrument of judgment against my sinful people. Judgment's coming. I'm going to do something. I'm going to bring, excuse me, the Babylonians. I'm going to bring them. They're going to defeat the Assyrians. And then they are coming your way. And they're going to defeat you as well. Do you still want to wear the t-shirt? Notice next in the latter part of verse 6 through verse 9 how God describes the Babylonians. God says the Babylonians are bitter, or, excuse me, are bitter and hasty nation. God knows the Babylonians well. He uses their evil ways to punish Judah. <coughs> the Babylonians are bitter, they're harsh, they're hard, they have no love. I read something somewhere when they them and the Assyrians had this practice when they took people captive, when they overthrew them and they took them captive, they would line them up in the line and they had these whatever it was that had these hooks in between. And they would run those hooks up in the noses of the people and they would march them to the line with everyone that hook up in their nose. So you dared not wobble or stumble or fall. They were harsh and bitter. Notice there it says, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. He says they sweep across the whole earth. They have a big goal of conquering. It's not, a just, it's not just enough that they want to take over Assyria and throw, overthrow them. They want the whole world. Verse 7 says, <coughs> excuse me, they were dreaded and fearsome. Judah is going to hear reports of how other cities are destroyed and falling. And what do you think they start to do? They tremble. They realize the Babylonians are coming their way. Notice there, it says, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Kind of sounds like who? Judah, God's people, right? The Babylonians were not bound by justice. They have their own system of justice. In their pride and arrogance, they abuse everyone. They're not following any kind of law except what they want to do. Does that sound familiar? (coughs) Remember, Habakkuk wondered where God's judgment was against sinful Judah. I wonder sometimes if Habakkuk would go, let's back up a minute, rewind, pretend I didn't ask, right? Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards. This speaks of how quickly the Babylonians conquer their enemies. Notice it's not just swift, but what? Swifter. They come quickly, so quickly that you can't react. Notice it says they're more fierce than the evening wolves. Notice again, are they just fierce or are they what? More fierce. That's an interesting statement there about these people. Evening wolves. Think about it. They've hunted all day and they haven't found anything to eat all day. They found nothing. So when night comes, what do you think is happening with these evening wolves? Man, they're starving. And then you throw Judah to them. What do you think is going to happen to them? It says their horsemen 
Press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. Using horses allow them to overtake their enemies before they had time to prepare. Judah doesn't have these. This army has horses. Imagine how they can overtake their enemies and they don't even have time to prepare to react. It says they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. An eagle is a bird of prey. It describes the Babylonians' fierceness and this hungry appetite they have to conquer. They're coming, Habakkuk. They're coming. You want to know what I was doing? I'm raising these people up to judge my people. Verse 9, they all come for, what's the next word? Violence. All their faces forward. Don't miss the very issue Habakkuk had raised in verse 2. It's exactly how judgment is carried out by God through the Babylonians. Violence. The Babylonians took it to a whole new level. Notice there it says, how many come for justice? All of them. All, I mean, it's not for justice. All of them come for what? Violence. That God should use a violent and sinful, guilty people against the violence within Judah is probably, as I've already said, not the response that Habakkuk was hoping for. Do you think? That's exactly what I thought you were going to do, God. That's, I just knew you were going to do something. I knew that was going to be it. Can you imagine being Habakkuk and God responding to that prayer and hearing that? <coughs> Notice it says there, they gather captives like sand. You've been at the beach, right? You ever just reached down and scooped up a lot of sand? What can that sand do? Nothing. I mean, you just... They gather captives like saying the Babylonians, they're just like the Assyrians. They would take people captive to the land to discourage and confuse them. They, take, they just don't destroy you. They, they keep uh, what they would consider the best of the best and they take them captive into their own, their own land. So what? You won't be raised up again. <coughs> Verse 10. It says that kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. The Babylonians had... No respect for the rulers of other nations. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. The defenses of other nations offered no resistance to them. Jerusalem, the capital, was surrounded by this large wall. A lot of cities did that, but Jerusalem had this enormous, big, large wall. What is God saying here? What's the prophet Habakkuk saying? No problem. What do they do? They laugh at that. It'll be absolutely no problem for them. They're going to build a ramp out of dirt, and they're going to capture the capital city. That's what that means. They pile up earth and take it. In those days, the Babylonians and the Syrians would come to take a city, and they'd have this wall around it, and they would spend days piling up dirt, making a ramp so they could go over the wall coming into the city. It's not going to be a problem. They're going to come. They're going to overthrow. They, they scoff. They, they laugh at rulers. And then they're going to move on to someone else. Verse 11. Then they sweep by like the wind and they what? How do they come by? Habakkuk. It's going to be just like the wind blowing. 
Just like the hurricane that came through, right? They sweep by like the wind and they just kind of go about their business. They go on. Guilty men, notice here, <coughs> don't miss this, whose might is their God. When the Babylonians would come and devastate the land of Judah, what would they do? They would give credit to their false gods. But what did God tell Habakkuk? I'm raising up. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God knew and said they would do this before it ever happened. Their own strength, their own might is their God. As we'll see in chapter 2, that's going to be their downfall as well. Don't miss that. Their God is who? Themselves. God says, no, I raised you up. I'm in control here. You want to worship yourselves? Your time is coming. And you'll see that in chapter 2. <clears throat> so how are we to think about this? You're kind of like, man, I didn't show up today for that. God, do something. This, this is the way to summarize these verses. God, do something. I am. You just ain't going to believe it. Is that what we just saw? God, do something. Well, I am. You're just not going to believe. Do you not respond to the wickedness around us like Habakkuk? Or do you respond with indifference? I'm too concerned about my life. I got things I got to do. I ain't got time to pray about what's going on in our world. Are you upset? And I don't mean angry, like you want to throw something at the TV and you're watching the news. Are you upset at injustice and wickedness and does it make you pray and seek God? God, do something. God, but do something in me and do something in the church that we can be salt and light to this wicked world. Do you and I pray with passion and ultimately trust a mysterious God? And by mysterious, I mean we can't figure out what He's doing. We don't always understand His plan, right? But we trust Him. And you're going to see that as we progress through the back. We don't always understand His plan. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. That's pretty clear, isn't it? As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And that puts everything in perspective here that we see, right? God, do something. I am. You're just not going to believe it. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And by the way, I think all of us would say, or we should say as professing believers, that God's ways are the best ways, right? Let me give you some things here to think about and to apply what we've seen here. And again, I'm not going to tell you anything that you haven't heard, right? History, all of history is under God's control. And that includes your history. All of history is under God's control. God sovereignly rules history. It's God that raised up the Babylonians. Just like it was God who raised up the Assyrians before them. You go back and read the Old Testament. You read in particular the book of Daniel. 
He raised up the Assyrians before them. And it will be God who raises up the Persians who will come and defeat the Babylonians. In Daniel chapter 4, Daniel says three times, listen, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. God, history is under God's control. Second, history follows a divine plan. History follows a divine plan. Remember in Revelation, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says, I wrote history. And it's following a plan. Now listen, if you wrote it and you're God... You're going to carry it out, right? God is faithful. I wrote history. It's following a plan. Listen, don't miss this. Every detail has been worked out. I know what I'm doing, and we're right on schedule. You and I have a hard time grasping that, right? And before the foundation of the world, God knew this was going to happen. He already had His plan in place. I know what I'm doing. Trust me, church, we are on schedule. (coughs) Thirdly, we need to understand that justice is always done in the end. Justice is always done in the end. History is under God's control. History follows a divine plan. And justice is always done in the end. Habakkuk. We, like Habakkuk, become frustrated. Because or, or because of God's silence. But God is just. And in the end, all the wicked will perish. Right? Where did we see that? The book of Revelation, right? Only the righteous, those who are cleansed through the blood of Christ, through faith in Him, they are the only ones who are secured. So the righteous live by faith. The same faith you put in Jesus to save you is the same faith you live by in this world until Jesus comes. So here's how we apply this. The Christian response to the wickedness that surrounds us is important. King Josiah, remember him? 2 Kings 22. When the law of the Lord was found and read to him, you know what he did? He tore his clothes. He wept and he was broken over what he heard God's word saying and knew his people were not following it. And you know what Josiah did? Well, no, he got busy. He started working. Did you hear that? He got busy. He started working. You're saying, well, I'm not the king. That's not the point. A one-man revival was Josiah. Listen, somebody had to get up and lead, right? And you're saying, well, it was the king. Well, yes. What did Habakkuk do when he saw the ungodliness and wickedness? He brought it to God in prayer, and he was tore up about it. Now I have to ask a question. Is that me? Is that you? We don't know God's ways. But at the end end of the day, we know this. All of God's ways, all of His history, leads to the cross of Jesus. 
And God's way leads all of history to a day when Jesus will return for His people and He will bring His final and complete judgment. Right? His Word tells us that. God's given us a promise that that's what He's doing. We read the book of Revelation, we study the book of Revelation, and we see that God's going to be faithful and He's going to keep His promise, right? That ought to be fuel for our faith now, no matter what goes on. We don't always know, but we know that all of history has led to the cross of Jesus, and that leads to one day Jesus returning for those who have trusted in Him, and Him carrying us to our eternal home, the new heavens and new earth, and bringing a final and complete judgment on the unrighteous. Jesus lived a sinless, pure, holy life. And then He willingly laid down His perfect life on the cross and He died in our place to give us righteousness that will allow us to survive that day of judgment. Nothing else will get you through that. But not only did He die on the cross, He rose from the dead, right? And one day, Jesus is coming. I have to tell myself that all the time. Regardless of what's going on in this world, regardless of what's going on in my personal life, one day, Jesus is coming. That's not a promise like anybody else makes. That's the God of heaven making a promise that He's coming one day. And that's what we cling to, church. That's what we hold on to. And we leave here with the gospel in hand and we go tell others, repent and trust Jesus. Let's pray.